Welcome back to middle school. It's a zoo out there, so just be cool. Don't speak too loud, try to fit in. But if you don't, then you can be in. everyone and welcome to the outfit repeaters an unofficial lizzie mcguire recap podcast i'm your host marissa Cantor, and with me as always is sam chung hello marissa it is great to be back once again marissa i think that we have some news 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 um and that is that your idol hillary duff was on Whitney Cummings' podcast about a week ago, and she had what you thought was news. I thought it was just lip service, but news about the upcoming Lizzie McGuire reboot. I mean, it came up. It was a subject. It seemed positive. She's still excited about it. She's not saying it's, you know, dead in the water. We don't have any hard details, but, you know, she talked more about what she wants the reboot to be and what she feels like she owes to her audience and sort of the experience of standing up for that against the Disney machine and sort of explained the the setbacks, I suppose. So you you feel that it's still going to happen? I do. She didn't say it wasn't. She said that she's feeling excited and good conversations are happening and I think it's just a matter of she has to film season seven of Younger first, which is happening right now. News, news, news. Hillary Duff is back in New York City as of this morning. So that's happening. So that's the first step. And then I think after, after Younger is wrapped, I think hopefully we'll hear more about the Lizzie McGuire situation. Do you think it's interesting how a lot of child stars just go back and do reboots instead of just doing new things? Well, Hillary Duff has been doing new things. She's been on Younger for six or seven years. I know. So it's like, why would you want to revisit this? I mean, she talked a lot about that too, actually, about how so much of her post-Disney experience was like, I'm not Lizzie McGuire. It's what you hear a lot of Disney actors talk about, you know, trying to break out of the Disney Channel mold. It's gone differently for various people, but she did articulate on the podcast about that feeling of separating herself from Lizzie. She's at a point where she's excited and feels ready to revisit it and that they can do it right for that audience. Seeing what Terry did with Andy Mack, I'm very optimistic that whatever they do, as long as they have it their way and get to do their vision for the reboot and actually aim it toward millennials who care and not the Disney family-friendly mold, I think it'll be great. And I'm hopeful, and I I will always watch anything she is in. My excitement knows no bounds. But she talked a lot about a lot of things on that podcast. It was a long podcast. It was like two hours of unfiltered Hillary Duff. It was, <laughs> it was a long podcast. It's very charming to, like, hear her. Like, she genuinely seems to not realize how famous she is. Yeah. And that's, like, super endearing. I mean, at this point, I feel like she's 
not as much in the public eye anymore. Sam, she's on Younger. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You but- act like she's not doing anything. You act like she doesn't have like 1.5 million Instagram followers. She is extremely beloved and she like gets stopped everywhere she goes. Okay. So on the cover of Cosmo. Print magazines are dead. Yes. I mean, like obviously the height of her career was like post Lizzie McGuire. Lizzie McGuire and post Lizzie McGuire where it was just like churning out movie after movie. But I think that she is still super relevant to my demographic. True. Just saying. What else has been going on this week? You made me watch the first episode of Roswell. I did because it falls into the genre of shows that are your favorite, to be frank. You know, honestly, the sexual tension between a human and an alien is palpable. It was Twilight before Twilight. It kind of was. It really was. And I mean, like young Katherine Heigl, here for it. I think I vaguely remember actually seeking out trying to watch Roswell but there just wasn't a place to watch it at the time, like in high school, because that was my Grey's Anatomy stage, where I think like my freshman year of high school, I binged like whatever was on, I think it was only the first six seasons of Grey's Anatomy were out at that time. It was a very quick, very um, passionate relationship I had with Grey's Anatomy. And then I was just like ready to consume anything else and Izzy Stevens is one of the best characters in early grays played by Katherine Heigl she was already out by season six though right season six was her final season Mm -hmm. she was kind of recurring and being like phased out so then I tried to find I saw she was in Roswell but there wasn't a place to watch it yet it wasn't streaming I think you mentioned you watched it on Netflix DVDs I I did watch it originally um (laughs) via Netflix DVDs so yeah, I showed you that. Just wrapped up Ted Lasso on Apple TV Plus. Also just wrapped up The Morning Show on Apple TV Plus. You know, I'm I'm an Android person, but work gave me an Apple, or I guess an iPhone. An Apple. <laughs> work gave me an Apple. <laughs> work, work gave me one Apple. That's how much of an Android person he is. I hate Apple. But they gave me an iPhone, and so with that came a year of Apple TV Plus. So I've been diving into Apple TV Plus shows. I also dove into Trying, which is a British sitcom with Esther Smith from Cuckoo. Have you finished that? I did. I feel like I would enjoy it. So, I mean, Apple TV Plus has some has some good stuff. I want to watch Little Voices. Okay. The Sarah Bareilles show. Yeah. I mean, it has no market share, but I like Ted Lasso a lot. I started watching Julie and the Phantoms. I'm halfway through it, and it is delightful. It is created by Kenny Ortega, who is behind the High School Musical franchise. And it really does have that like big High School Musical energy in terms of the production value. All the songs in it are absolute bangers. It's so good because the whole, so the whole premise of this show is that Julie, she's the main character and she is a musician, but before the show, like a year before the show starts, her mother passed away. And she hasn't played music since. And her garage gets haunted by a 1990s boy band called Sunset Curve, who three of the four members died by way of eating bad street dogs. She can see them, but no one else can, except when they are playing music. When they play music, everyone can see them. And it's it's delightful. All right. We need to get into this because we're already... You know, this is a, a a big movie that we're talking about today. This is a big movie. It is one of my favorite movies. 
Today on the podcast, we are recapping a Cinderella story starring Hilary Duff, Chad Michael Murray, Jennifer Coolidge, Regina King, among others in this stellar cast. Yep, this movie is from 2004. So did you see this in the movie theater? I, I can say with confidence that I saw it in theaters, but I don't really have strong memories of the theatrical experience. My memories with this movie are really just watching it over and over again with my sister in our basement via the DVD that I own. Got you. I find it surprising that this is one of your favorite movies. How so? It, it do, It's not a very deep movie to me. I don't know. And it feels very, I don't know. It just is very tropey. Okay, well, tropey isn't a bad thing. Mind you, the first time I saw this movie, I was literally eight. So... <laughs> My attachment to it at this point is definitely emotional and nostalgic, you know, like, and we can have those things that we just love without thinking too critically about it. That's fair. Oh, another memory I have is I also had the soundtrack, like the CD of the music from the movie that I listened to all the time. Yeah, this movie did have a good soundtrack. Is that going to be your favorite part about the movie? Yeah, MVP to Edwin McCain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Edwin McCain, Jesse McCartney, and Hilary Duff really supplied the tunes. So before we dive into this movie, is there any... I just want to say something first. Guess what the Rotten Tomatoes score was for this movie? I can't imagine. It's very high. Uh, It's probably like a 30. Lower. (laughs) Um, 24. Lower. Lower than 24. Oh, no. 20. Lower. It is 12%. 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) I mean, that checks out. That's one of the reasons it surprised me that this is your favorite movie. (laughs) But you you adamantly stand by it. I do. I don't think it holds up in the way that, like, my true favorite movie, 10 Things I Hate About You, holds up. Like, 10 Things I Hate About You is, by and far away, a perfect movie. I mean, that movie has more complex characters and it doesn't have a plot that falls apart when you scrutinize it with like this much of a, uh, like a tiny magnifying glass. Like the fact that nobody recognizes her. We'll talk about that. We'll talk, we'll we'll get into that. It's just ridiculous. But before we dive into the movie, I just want to double check because last week we reviewed Celebrity Wife Swap and we found out some pretty startling things about the characters as we went through the episode. Is there anything that we need to know about these people in the present day before we dive into the movie? I don't think so. It's a pretty stellar cast. Regina King won out of everyone. Like, who is the most relevant from this cast right now? Regina King. Yeah, it's Regina King, for sure. Then Hilary Duff. Really good showing for Regina King here, too, I must say. But yeah, this was one of, if not the first movie... Hilary Duff did after Lizzie McGuire. This is her, this is the beginning of her post Lizzie era. Yeah, I mean, she still looks pretty young and she still, I mean, they make her play a high schooler. Yeah, and she, I mean, she pulls off high school in this movie. I think she still is at this point, maybe 18 here. So it's not super startling. I mean, like Chad Michael Murray on the other hand. <laughs> Though, in all fairness, maybe Chad Michael Murray just never actually looked like a high school student. Yeah, it looks like he would have been 22, 23. Had One Tree Hill started? Yeah, it looks like One Tree Hill was 2003. Okay, yeah, so this is like season one, Chad Michael Murray, One Tree Hill era. Honestly, the best Chad Michael Murray showing in One Tree Hill, his character takes like 
I think his character peaks in season one. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to see present day remakes of, you know, classic stories and how they're done. And you have the wide range. There's obviously this example, but then you look at things like Romeo plus Juliet from Boz Lerman, and they're just not my thing. Wait, 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 wait. Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet is probably the greatest Romeo and Juliet retelling. I don't know. I just can't get into it. I can't get into them speaking in, you know, old English vernacular. Oh, it's so good. In present day LA. I just can't get into it. Wait, so are you just not a remake person in general? Like, what about like Easy A? What about A 10 Things I Hate About You? What about, because I feel like mid 2000, like early to mid 2000s was this like prime time for this sort of like classic novels and Shakespeare to be adapted for a teen audience. They None of them were your thing? There are some that I like more than others, I think. But I mean, I think that the ones that try to stay closer to the source material are the ones that really don't work for me. Like if you're going to try to reboot something, at least try to make it fresh and new. You don't think a Cinderella story was fresh and new? There was texting. No. <laughs> there was... <laughs> Um, on flip phones unfortunately no I have to say and maybe I am a traitor for saying this but I also within the last year rewatched the Selena Gomez another Cinderella story and I think that holds up a tad more than this one because I really enjoyed rewatching another Cinderella story actually now that I'm looking at this cast you know who's probably second most successful post this movie after Regina King who? Is probably Simon Helberg. Yeah, what is he? Because def- he went on to star he went on to star in the Big Bang Theory. Right. <laughs> I was like, I knew he looked Sorry, familiar. Sorry, Hilary Duff. You got knocked down a peg. I knew he looked familiar, but I'm not a Big Bang person. Millions but of he's people the, are. He's the um he's like the opposite of Sheldon, right? Like he's the other main character. Well, one of them, yeah. Yeah, he plays Howard. And his character was so unnecessary in this movie. That is very true. <laughs> You know what it is for me? It's just like the meaningful looks that Austin Ames cat. Like, I don't know. I was very into Chad Michael Murray at this time. Should we just jump in? Sure. Just jump into the movie. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. We open with, you know, the once upon a time in a faraway kingdom set up, except it's not a faraway kingdom. It's the San Fernando Valley. And there's a lot of smog. And we... Start with the movie with a flashback montage of Hilary Duff's character. Her name is Sam. Another Sam to talk about on the podcast. I know. It seems like everything that we do has a... Has a Sam. A Sam in it. And it's her, you know, growing up with a single dad whose name is Hal. And her dad is her best friend. We get, you know, this opening montage to This Will Be. I can't take that song seriously anymore. It's been in too many ED commercials. <laughs> and no explanation about her mom, really. I guess we just assume that her mom is dead. Yeah, she's probably dead. But she, you know, really loves her dad. Her dad owns Hal's Diner, which appears to be a very lucrative diner based on, like, where and how they live. Yeah, this whole opening is very strange to me. <laughs> Maybe it's a product of the times, but I doubt it. We get like the one day that it rains in the valley and it just happens to be this day. I don't know. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. You are jumping ahead because we haven't even talked about 
the introduction of Fiona, the evil stepmother played by Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, so I'm confused. Like, what did he see in her? I do not know. <laughs> Why did they get married? I don't know. It just seemed like um, she fell into his lap and he thought that Sam needed a mom and therefore... Like, nothing about her... Is appealing. Seems like... I'm a very appealing person. Yeah, I just don't understand. This makes me think that maybe Hilary Duff's character, Sam, doesn't remember her dad. Like, she's misremembering her dad. <laughs> that could be true, because... <laughs> I mean, she was pretty young. So that could be... That could be true. Or Fiona had really, like, just put the mist on. Just, like, was an entirely different person. No, I'm going to go with that Sam is misremembering her dad. Yeah. We get a shot of the wedding and the wedding photo and Fiona dropping the bouquet so that Sam will pick it up just as the camera flash happens and therefore is not in the family wedding photo. Mm-hmm. Which is like a pretty evil, th- like, why is Fiona so evil to this, like, eight-year-old? Uh, yeah. That, that is just like, why, why, why? Why is she such a monster to her husband's child? There's not really an explanation. There is not. And then we get this scene that is very, um, it sets up a lot. And there's also, you know, some foreshadowing happening. Um, but it's really like the... I would say like the catalyst for when we jump to it, it's all the it, it gives all the context for like what's going on in present day. So her dad is reading her a bedtime story, a fairy tale, and Sam asks, where do princesses go to college? And her dad says, they go where the princes go. They go to Princeton. Ob- obviously, <laughs> that's how that works. This is also when we get one of the you know most quoted lines from this movie, the um, the line "Never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game." It's on the wall of the diner. Yeah, this feels like a Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott quote. It does. <laughs> you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. Yeah, that is what it feels like. Her dad tells her that this fairy tale book, if you look closely, you know it contains a lot of important things. That you may need later in life. Yeah, this just came off as like <laughs> George Bluth telling Michael that there's always money in the banana stand. That's, <laughs> that's literally what I, what I wrote down in my notes. It's just him going, there's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> and I just knew in this moment that later on we would get some sort of big reveal that he hidden something <laughs> in the book. In the book. Yeah. I, I, no I had, surprises there, there for you. Yeah, this was not, this was not even like subtle. Subtle. <laughs> From there, boom, earthquake. I mean, this is where the movie turns into San Andreas. It really does, and it's very traumatic. So this was strange to me. It's not really something that they dive too deeply into about how he dies somehow during this earthquake. Your first thought would be, oh, maybe the earth just opened up beneath him and swallowed (laughs) him, but the house is fine. Like, (laughs) nothing happened with the house. The house is still there years and years later. So what ha- <laughs> what happens to him? I have no idea. And they make it seem like he's going to save Fiona in some way. She's screaming help. Yeah, but she's fine. But she's fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. <laughs> Except the dad who's, who's somehow who's died. inexplicably dead. I don't know. I imagine just like a clock maybe fell off the wall and just hit him on the head. I don't know. <laughs> 
it's so it's so random and it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's one of those things that, you know, I never thought too deeply about in the moment, but now I'm sort of like, huh. Huh, what, like what, how did he die? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because like, oh. everything else is fine. I don't know. Okay, so we're suspending, suspension of disbelief, number one. I mean, there's a lot of suspense. This is like almost like a plot hole. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so this is our first plot hole of the movie. You're going to have a really bad day. So from here, Sam says, since my dad left no will, my stepmother got everything, the house, the diner. Okay, so uh, this is, I want to skip to the end of the movie so bad because I just have so many comments. There is a will, plot twist, and the stepmother isn't in it. So why are, why did they even get married in the first place? I don't understand. Okay, what makes no sense, and yeah, we are jumping to the end about this whole will thing, is she's not in it, but she's like the witness. Yeah, she was like, like the executor or whatever. She signed it. Yes. Like <laughs> I don't understand. 12%, bro. 12%. <laughs> but yeah, she's committing a lot of fraud. Yeah. But yeah, she says that she gets everything. The house, the diner, and to her dismay, me. Which is just such a sad line. That gets me every time. Because then it just like goes right into Sympathy by the Goo Goo Dolls. That musical transition. It's just like it. Did and you we like get- the... Wait, did you like the... So he says that he's going to go save Fiona, and then there's like a slow motion shot of their hands just drifting apart. <laughs> and there's the snow globe Whoa. image that just like shatters. shatters. It's really traumatic. I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody's living with any trauma <laughs> or something so traumatic. So then as the opening notes of Sympathy plays, young Sam is carrying a single box of belongings up to the attic where she now lives. She has been kicked out of the main house. She's probably like nine or ten years old, and she now lives in the attic. Yeah, very Harry Potter. We don't talk about Harry Potter on this podcast anymore. (laughs) Okay. And then we cut to eight years later, intro Hilary Duff. Yep, and in true Cinderella fashion, she is now a slave. Of course she is. But it's twenty first. It's a twenty first century slave. Um, she's got an intercom set up in her bedroom. She has to go make Fiona breakfast while her stepsisters are doing pool aerobics, synchronized swimming, and they're very dysfunctional. So her step siblings, their names are Brianna and Gabriella. They are extremely dysfunctional, but they are very much. Even though they don't really like each other, they like each other more than they like Sam. I wrote down the line, I have a spastic colon. I had that I had that written down too. <laughs> was it because one of them farted in the pool? Yes, that is why. <laughs> I mean, this is a kid's movie and it has some weird kid humor kid, things yeah. throughout. So this was just this was just one of them. Yeah, so Sam brings Fiona her breakfast. She is on a salmon diet. She is reading a book called The Salmon Diet. All salmon all the time. I mean she's com- at least she's committed. <laughs> Fiona tells Sam to get to work. Sam works in the diner that has now been rebranded as Fiona's. Like, totally stripped everything about Hal away from this diner. Like, it is now very pink. Yeah, this diner is like if you put a Sonic burger inside, like, a cupcake box. That's a really great description. (laughs) It's very pink. They now rollerblade around in their, like, poodle skirts. It turns out that when it rained... 
upon Sam's father's death eight years ago. That's, I guess, the last time that it rained ever in yes. the valley. They're in the middle of a drought. First, Fiona says, you know, get to work. Because the whole thing in this movie is now Sam's dream is to go to Princeton. And so she, you know, is studying a lot. She is this great student. She, Princeton. She doesn't Yeah, want- why does she want to go to... I don't know. I don't even know what she wants to do. Me either. She just wants to go to Princeton. She has no... She, in true Lizzie McGuire fashion, she has no interests. Maybe I should develop some interests. It's true. So I don't understand. I guess just Princeton. Princeton has just been incepted into her mind as a young child. And I know. now she's like, I need to go to Princeton. And I don't, I don't understand. Is it to find her prince? Because she found her prince in California. Unclear what she... I just don't understand what the no, point of going think, to Princeton is. I don't think it's like go to Princeton to meet a man. I think it's like tied to like, again, her dad. I don't know what she wants to do. And like one of your first reactions to this movie was how underdeveloped Austin Ames is. And we'll get into that. But like at least he has That's true. He's an more aspiration. developed than her. <laughs> um, at least yeah. he wants to be a writer. But yeah, Jennifer Coolidge, Fiona says people study to go to college People go to college to get jobs, and you already have a job. So it's like skipping a step. Very down on educational aspirations. That's one way to look at it. Hilary Duff leaves. The sprinklers go off. And in one of my favorite lines of the movie, Sam is like, we're in the middle of a drought. We're supposed to be conserving water. And Fiona says, droughts are for poor people. Yeah, I mean. You think J-Lo has a burnt lawn? This goes back to your point earlier where it's like, how do they have this much money? Aren't they? Aren't they I don't understand how they're rich people. From like one diner. From one diner. I know. It's not even a franchise. It's one diner. I know. It's pretty remarkable the lifestyle that they live in the valley. Yeah. So then we are at the diner. This is one of the recurring settings in this movie. As I already mentioned, it is completely redesigned and renamed Fiona's. The waitresses are rollerblading, and Regina King is still working at the diner. She seems to be the one really running the ship. Regina King, big role. It's like uh, she, I guess, is the fairy godmother in this story. Yeah, so her character's name is Rhonda, and she is the fairy godmother, but she's also more like, you know, surrogate mother. Like, she's the actual mother figure. That's true. She's the. She plays many roles. She is the... Fairy godmother, the surrogate mother, the one character of diversity in the movie. As such, the magnet for all the racist comments in the movie. Yep. Yeah, it's an interesting role for her. Yep, and in this scene, she is upset that Sam is still working. You have to get to school. I don't even know what that means, but I gotta get back to school! Yes. So from there, Sam leaves the diner, and she goes to pick up her best friend, Carter, played by Dan Bird. Yeah, interesting role for him as well. He obviously wants to be an actor, and so I guess instead of joining the drama club, just tries to... (laughs) No, he is in the drama club. Is he he in the drama club? He was in Pirates of Penzance. Oh, okay. That leads to the big moment at the party, the Halloween homecoming. Okay. But, but yes, addition, he's a method actor. In addition to being in the drama club, he's all, he also, in his spare time, just embodies other personalities. So he comes out, you know, in like a, well, let's just say he says, this is my Snoop Dizzle look. 
this movie had so many parallels to the things that we've seen in Lizzie McGuire that it was kind of shocking. And I feel very strongly that Warner Brothers just made this film as like a middle finger to Disney in everything that they do. Really? Well, yeah, because obviously, first of all, it's a Cinderella story, but Warner Brothers put it together. Second of all, they grabbed Hilary Duff, a Disney Channel star, to star in it. And then third of all, they took all of the Lizzie McGuire tropes and just rehashed them here in the movie. Yeah, he is a method actor. I have to say that Sam and Carter's friendship, to me, is leagues above Lizzie and Gordo. Like, I think their friendship is one of the best relationships in the movie. Like, I think that holds up really well. I also really appreciated with their friendship seeing a platonic male-female friendship where neither neither one of them has, you know, hidden feelings for the other. I feel like that is not typically the case. There's no, you know, pining. Yeah, there's just like no, it's, it's completely platonic. I really appreciate that. I mean, he is obsessed with Shelby Cummings. Yes. So he's a little distracted right now. So they pull into the school parking lot and... We get sort of the school set up. We, we continue to know what's going on in the school via this girl whose name is Astrid, who does the morning announcements in a very sort of um, snarky way. Yep. So we learn that today is the last day to get tickets to the Halloween homecoming dance. Sam is pulling into a parking spot only to get cut off by Shelby and her friends. And they are a very, you know, stereotypical, popular girl group. In that stereotypical, you know, two white girls and the one black friend way. The way casting typically looked during this time. But, like, Shelby is the only character that has any sort of real role in the movie. The other two friends are kind of just there. Madison and I don't even really remember what the third one's name is. Carter is super into Shelby. He talks to her in his mind, and in his mind, she wants him. And then they see another spot. Sam goes for it again, once again, cut off. This time by Austin Ames in his, is that a Jeep? It is. Yes. This giant Jeep. You have the iconic scene where he gets out of the car. It's like in slow motion, and he like locks the car, and it like flashes with the, like, it's like beep, beep. Sam says like how... Like, look at how much ego is in one relationship. Very not high on any of these people. And says that they probably don't even know who she is. But yes, they do know who she is because to everyone, she is diner girl. She's rich, but she's diner girl. I know. So <laughs> let's find something to bully this, you know, completely normal and like well-adjusted person over and make her seem not as pretty or well-adjusted as she actually is. Mm -hmm. Diner girl, you have a job. How dare. Now we cut to in the hallway. The stepsisters are very much, I guess you could say that they are second circle core. I guess so. In the, in, in OC terms, they are very much on the outskirts of the Shelby group, but they are aspiring to break in. They approach her with a, hey, sister friend, which is kind of an iconic, like that line always sticks out. Yeah, it's very, it's again, very, very similar to the cartoon. I think just once I'd like to see a Cinderella story or not a Cinderella story, but like a Cinderella in the mold of Cinderella story where like the stepsisters are actually competent. Like at least try a little. 
come on, this is just lazy. Yeah, they're very ditzy. Madison asks Shelby why they even associate with them, and it's pretty much because they are rich, and I guess they gave Shelby, like, a Prada bag for her birthday, to which Madison says, Prada? You mean Frada? We get the first scene with Terry. Yeah, and I don't understand why he's there. Me either. His character serves no purpose except, like, he's supposed to be the butt of a joke in a very unnecessary way. Yeah, again... It's they're taking the Lizzie McGuire tropes and they've just found a different version of Larry. Right. And put him into this movie. Like he's this guy who I guess thinks he's on another planet. He is eccentric. I'm like, okay, are you trying to use because the insinuation, right, is that he's mentally ill. Yeah. But then they're like using that as the butt of a joke. And it's like not funny Mm -hmm. at all. He thinks he's from the planet Zion. And Sam is like, well, Carter, sometimes fantasy is better than reality. And then her phone rings. And let's talk about fantasy. We get into the texting montage. An iconic scene. Yes. So Sam gets a text from her secret admirer. And we learn that her screen name is Princeton Girl 1818. Why? What are the 18s for? Just random numbers. Princeton Girl... Through Princeton Girl, 1817 was taken. <laughs> <laughs> she is the 818th Princeton Girl. So this communication is only with kids at the school. Is that right? Like, it turns out they were in, I guess, a Princeton support group? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't a know. chat group for people who are aspiring to go to Princeton. Yeah, a chat group that I guess never met in person, only digitally. I love this scene. I love that they are texting on flip phones. See, I was lukewarm on this scene. Oh my God, how? Because there's weird homophobia. There's like... Okay, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not great. It's more just like the nostalgia of like the flip phones, the way that they text in shorthand in a way that like nobody does anymore except maybe like your mother. The way he's like, she says LOL and he's like, I want to hear your laugh. Yeah, I know. There's the, like, you're not a guy, are you? She's like, I am not a guy. Um, yeah, he says, if you are, I'll kick your butt. <laughs> that is really bad. But, yeah, so this whole, you know, we start with the texting. We sort of bleed into they also instant message via AIM. His screen name is Nomad609, and he's, like, he's very lonely, despite there's, like, the line about, like, you ever feel like you're in a sea of people? Pretending to be somebody that you're not. But when I talk to you, I'm exactly who I want to be. What I love most about this scene is honestly just like cinematically. the Because they are texting, I guess, in the quad. And they're sitting on this like circular bench thing. And she's looking around, seeing who else is, you know, texting at this moment. Like wondering, where is he? Because he makes a comment about how the science teacher has dissected one too many frogs, which is in her line of vision. Yeah, a clear Mr. Pettis reference. Clearly. Oh my God, you're right. This is Lizzie McGuire. He also clearly has the same line of vision. So they are close. And then the bell rings and she gets up and then the camera pans over and there he is. And he's like, when can we meet? And she says, soon. And he flips his phone closed and he just has a disgruntled sigh. I don't know. I just love it. Yeah. So then they're aiming. They are texting until, you know, 2 a.m. at one point because Sam does have a computer in her bedroom. 
Austin just like spews some Tennyson at her, just like off the cuff Tennyson. <laughs> You're including way too many details in this recap. Oh my god! You need to. You need to of, just. I the love the parts. texting scene. The important parts. I love this let's montage. Stick with, let's stick with the I plot. I love this <laughs> montage. Okay, well there is plot because then he asks her to come to the homecoming dance with her with him sorry now you're getting me flustered <laughs> that yeah, is plot they're gonna meet at the middle of the dance floor at 11 yes cut to the next scene sam and carter are at in the baseball field now because yeah remember sam raised by her dad is a tomboy we also get into some weird stuff later about how sam is real compared to shelby that i would like to unpack when we get there mm-hmm. but for now she is hitting baseballs Carter is very, oh my God, you have to go. But she is worried that maybe their whole relationship is better in cyberspace. And this is where I'm like, oh, was my book, my debut novel, subconsciously based on a Cinderella story? Oh, maybe. That's a good point. Carter says that he will help her here. He's going to be her escort. And she proceeds to then crush a ball almost all the way to Austin, who is playing catch with one of his friends. I didn't write down their names because it's not important. I think it's David and Ryan. Okay. They're like, whoa, a girl hit that. Whoa. (laughs) That's crazy, bro. And Austin's like, see, that's impressive. Yeah, the gender stuff in this movie is a lot, actually, to unpack. We also get here because Carter is very like, why do you... Do whatever Fiona tells you to do. Why Why are you her slave? And Sam is like, simple. No Fiona, no money for Princeton. So Fiona's basically sort of lording that over her. Right on cue, she gets a call. She needs to go pick up the dry cleaning, uh, etc. So she just needs to go. And meanwhile, Austin is continuing his conversation with either David or Ryan, I don't know, and I don't care, <laughs> about how he doesn't really want to be a, be in a relationship with Shelby anymore. Yeah. He's not sold on going to the dance with her. And they're like, so who are you going to go with? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Princeton girl, 1818. Yeah. The thought of going to a dance alone, just not possible. So then we cut to um, Austin's dad's car wash. So yeah, his father owns a car washing business and they have a brief conversation about like, oh, I saw those like, Princeton flyers in your in your room like why are you looking at colleges you're gonna go to USC and play football and then you're gonna run the business we have it all mapped up you're good and Austin is like we don't need your root beer my thing that like when I think about this storyline and like the parental pressure to lend the whole like you know living your parents dream versus pursuing your own what parent truly would be upset if their kid came to them and and was like, hey, so USC is fine, but like, I really want to try to get into Princeton. I know USC football isn't even that good. (laughs) Yeah, I went there. Come at me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it was in 2004. Yeah, they're okay. They had like Reggie Bush, but these days, sorry, Pac-12, you're not where it's at. But like, what parent would actually be mad at their child for their dream being to attend an Ivy League college? That just does not compute to me. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's it's because it's the football thing, right? Like, his dad really wants him to just be a a footballer, a baller. And you don't go to Princeton to be a baller. No, you don't. You go to Princeton to be Tennyson two So Sam drives on up in Fiona's car. Yeah, and Austin tells her that she needs a wax. 
like, excuse me? <laughs> and the, the, I meant the car. Yeah, and then the two stepsisters have identical <laughs> identical Volkswagen Beetles. They do. Except one is red and one is green. And um, I don't know what they've done. It looks <laughs> like... <laughs> they like, show up with, like, mud all over their cars. Like, they rolled the car in, like, a mud pit. And they act like Austin personally is going to be the one, like, taking his shirt off and washing the car. <laughs> I don't think they realize that the car is just going to go through a machine. Later on, they will realize that when, oh, yes, they, they, will. when they go through the machine. Sam asks them, who did you pay to, you know, mess up your car? And they're like, what are you, the dirt police? That's yep. pretty much that. That Yeah, that's all I have on that. I'm like, did it cut from there? I guess it did. We're back to Fiona. She's in a tanning bed. It opens. Sam kind of recoils because she is presumably naked. She wraps a towel around herself. This is the moment where she tells Sam that she needs to work tonight. She needs to take the night shift. And Sam's like, no, this is this is my night off. And I'm I want to go to the Halloween homecoming dance. But Fiona's like, no, no, no. You need to work. We see Sam trying to push back. She's like, I'm a straight A student. I work my, you know, I work my butt off. Please, like, let me go to this dance. Jennifer Coolidge is like, you know, there's something I've been meaning to tell you for a very long time, and now I think you're old enough to hear it. You're not very pretty, and you're not very bright. I'm so glad we had that talk. Yeah, and this just, this goes down a whole road of her being awful, because then we cut to the diner, and she and Regina King have a confrontation, and she says, well, if it isn't Betty Crocker from the hood... So I don't understand why any of the employees continue to work at this diner. It sounds like a terrible working environment. Yeah, she's very abusive. She is abusive. She is a gaslighter. She is referred to by her employees as the Wicked Witch of the Valley. Yeah, well, and they don't need to work there. <laughs> there, there are probably thousands of diners. They could go to any one of them. But they do because they love Sam. They can't leave Sam on her own. Not worth it. <laughs> She's going to be back at the restaurant at 12 o'clock sharp, of course, because it's a Cinderella story after picking up her daughters from the dance. And we get the line where she's like, I'm a very appealing person. Then Sam has to cover the table where the popular kids are and they harass her and it turns Austin off. He's not about this bullying from both the guys and the girls. They're both very rude to her. This is That's like, why are you friends with these people, Austin? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is the final straw for him. He tells Shelby, he wants to tell her in private, but then he ends up telling her right there in front of everybody. He wants to break up. This is it. We're through. And they're like, what? There's a lot of great... I know we're supposed to be like, you know, not getting hung up on the details, but there are a lot of great lines in this moment. Oh my God. That I would just like to deliver. <laughs> Do we need them? <laughs> yes. No, that's the... Shelby, oh, oh, Shelby okay. asks what on the menu has zero calories, zero sugar, and zero grams of fat. And Sam says, water. And then she asks for a vase. It's a water from Norway. Sam goes, well... Here we only have water from the valley. Yeah, a lot of Norway love in this movie. And before the breakup, Shelby says, anything you say to me, you can say in front of my peeps. But then instant regret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says he likes someone else. It's Princeton Girl 1818. And then they all leave and he's there alone. I mean, I guess him being alone lets uh, he and Sam have a quick moment before he He tries he to pay her well. yeah. for, the, for the drinks. For the water. Feisty. <laughs> yeah. Carter shows up and he's dressed as Zorro and 
he has the keys to his dad's Mercedes. Now, we kind of brushed, we didn't address this sort of car subplot. What year is it? Everybody has a car that looks like it's from the 1980s. I know. (laughs) Why? Yeah, well, it is 2004. But yes, Carter has a habit of totaling cars. He has totaled the last three cars that his father bought him, and that is the epitome of white privilege. Just a messing up and getting a second chance, and then messing up again, and then getting a third chance. Yeah. And then still getting the keys to your dad's Mercedes. Indeed. And Carter ends up telling Rhonda all about Sam's situation. In doing so, he calls her girlfriend multiple times, which is, eh, don't love, don't love that. That is girlfriend. They call me girlfriend one more time. This is what really influences Rhonda's fairy godmother act. Sam is like, yes, I deserve this. I'm going to go to that dance and I'm going to meet my prince and we're going to dance all night. But JK, I can't go. I don't have a costume. No worries. They're going to go to a costume store and bribe the owner with free breakfast for a month. A whole month. A I whole know. month of free breakfast. You know who won this movie? The costume store owner. I know. He's getting free breakfast for a month. And of course we get a costume montage because, you know, in the same vein as Lizzie McGuire, this movie loves a good montage. We get Sam trying on a variety of costumes. Yeah, a variety of costumes just to settle for a Venetian mask at the end. We get a witch. We get Porky Pig. That's what it should have been. Then no one would have known it was her. Exactly. Um, A hula dancer, a nun, a knight. The knight would have worked too. Um, But then Rhonda sees a mask and she has an outfit that goes with it. Yeah, just her wedding dress that she's never That she's never worn. (laughs) I know, I'm like, so she just has like a full wedding dress laying around. And it is a beautiful dress. And Rhonda says that the dress deserves to have a night out. And of course, Sam should wear it. So then we cut. We're now at the Halloween homecoming dance. We learn at this dance that the teachers are going to be choosing a homecoming prince and princess. And the stepsisters arrive as Siamese twin cats. (laughs) Yes, literally attached to each other. Yep, they are stuck in one costume. Austin was (laughs) apparently supposed to be... One of the three musketeers along with his two nameless friends who I don't care about. But one of them, but I guess his costume got lost. So he has gone as Prince Charming instead. How apropos. Yeah, he dipped out (laughs) of the group costume. And the girls are angels. I guess Charlie's angels, one could say. Because there are three of them. Yeah, I, I was unclear, but I guess so. Sam and Carter arrive in one of the most iconic images in this movie. She clips her flip phone to her shoe. Yeah, I mean. And it stays there. That was where I put my phone. (laughs) On her strappy sandal. That's it. Carter sets an alarm on her phone for 1145 so that they can make it back to the diner in time before Fiona is back. Clips that cell phone to her shoe. We get this like. Big entrance, this big, you know. Yeah, it's like Titanic or something. She just stands at the top of the stairs and then everybody stares at her. To the song, Best Day of My Life by Jesse McCartney. Right. I think that for me, when when I'm thinking about this movie in retrospect, all of the moments that stick with me from this movie are tied to the music. Like, I don't think I can state enough how well the score is integrated into this film. It's not really the score, it's the soundtrack. The soundtrack, excuse me. 
You're right. No original music. They didn't do a. They didn't pull a Shrek where the score and the soundtrack melds together no they did not They're, they weren't at that level i know they should have been if they were really thinking next level about it but yeah it's just it's such a good soundtrack every key moment really just has the perfect song to go with it mm-hmm. i love it so yes we get her big cinderella entrance everyone is staring at her no one knows it's sam diner girl which how it's crazy it doesn't make any sense like her mask doesn't even cover her whole face it's literally an eye mask. She, she didn't change her hair. Yes, she is still blonde. She still has bangs. She's the same height she always was. <laughs> she has the same voice. I just, the fact that nobody recognizes her is where I just got totally lost. Yeah, she has a pretty distinctive voice too, I would say. I know, especially for people who make fun of her multiple times a day. It's crazy. Um, Shelby says, love her dress, hate her. Yeah, so this, I thought that she recognized her oh, she when she said not. that, but apparently she just hates people. <laughs> so Sam goes to the center of the dance floor and is waiting for Prince Charming. But who shows up first but Terry? Like, why? Why is this here? So he can have whatever the mating dance of Zion. Yeah, and she's like, Terry, are you nomad? He's like, nomad. Indeed I am. Yeah, he's going with it. He's a, he... <laughs> He's taking some improv classes. He knows that the correct answer in this situation is yes and. (laughs) And that's just, he's rolling with it. We get like a sort of glimmer of recollection from Gabriella, one of the stepsisters, which is like, oh my God, you live with her. Like you literally live with her. (laughs) I know she's in the attic, but. uh, And it's too much for her. She needs to go get a drink. And this is where she runs into the real nomad, Austin. Yeah, and he's like Princeton girl. And she's not impressed with him. No. <laughs> like and if she wasn't impressed with Terry, she's even less impressed with Austin. Yeah, she immediately has regrets. You're and football she- captain and student body, student body president and a poet. You and can't be both. poet. You can't be both. <laughs> you can't. You can't be more than one thing. Her first thing is like, don't you know who I am? And he does not. He's like, of course I do. So dumb. You're Princeton girl. Oh my God. (laughs) Terry comes back with the drinks because she doesn't go get a drink. She has Terry go and get them drinks. Right. And he's like, Austin Ames, a devastating blow, a worthy opponent. Yeah, they end up, he wants to go for, you know, a walk outside. Like, give me a chance to show you who I am is the whole vibe. He does not care about sticking around and being homecoming prince. So, yeah, so then they have their, you know, late evening stroll. And it's like, where are you? Yeah, it's I like they, this was left, at school. they left school and went to just a wedding venue. There's like a gazebo with chairs set up all around it. What's the purpose? Like, where did they go? There's like live music. I, yeah, it's like they left school and arrived at a country club. I just don't understand. <laughs> And meanwhile, he's telling her, you think I remember those eyes. They're so beautiful. Like, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Everything you say is just making this more and more implausible. Yeah. They play 20 questions. He gets 20 questions to try to figure out who she is. He doesn't ask very good questions to, like, help figure this out. Questions include, do you go here? Um, Two and three centered around himself. He asked if she was disappointed when she found out that it was him. He just he just needs an ego boost. 
Um, then he asked, did you vote for me for student body president? Like, this has nothing to do with, like... These are actually voter suppression questions. And then he, <laughs> and then, and then he asks, if given the choice, would you eat a rice cake or a Big Mac? Because and she would eat a Big Mac. And he likes a girl with a hearty appetite. <laughs> and I guess this narrows down half of the class. Yeah. Inside. David assaults Shelby. Yeah, straight up. It's just, <laughs> it's very aggressive. And so Carter has to swoop in and save her. It culminates in a chase scene throughout the dance, which nobody thinks to break up or, or stop in any way. They just let it happen. And ultimately, Carter ends up beating unnamed kid up with the bar. Same as David. Okay. <laughs> no, he has no name. So his method acting... And acting experience comes into play here because he's like, Pirates of Penzance, act three, scene two. Boom. Up goes the bar. Back goes David into like a pumpkin patch. Yeah, this throws him like 20 feet. <laughs> and a pumpkin falls onto his head, like a carved pumpkin. So he now has a pumpkin on his head. He, that was a ridiculous scene. It, it and was. I, and I do think it really skates over the fact that like he fully was like trying to assault her. And she was fully saying no. Yeah, but then it had no impact on her because two seconds later, she and Carter are making out. Well, Carter saved her. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, thank you, sir. You're so brave. And like, honestly, like his costume is a similar vibe to Sam's and they don't recognize him either. Yeah. Like same deal. He really is just wearing like a mask over his eyes. Uh, He's Zorro. uh, These people are so dumb. It's really the same thing. All right, back outside. Live music starts to play for Sam and Austin inside the gazebo, surrounded by hundreds of empty chairs. Yes, it is the instrumental opening of Albie. But wait, it's not instrumental. Edwin McCain himself is hiding in the bushes somewhere to start singing. Is it diegetic? Is it non-diegetic? We'll never know. (laughs) This is another reason I love the movie, though. This this, This whole dance sequence is so beautiful. Do you feel like you made the right choice meeting me here tonight? I do. And then he's about to take her mask off, but oh no, it's not midnight quite. It's 11.45. Yeah, she has got to dip. He's like, where are you going? And she's late. Late for what? Reality. Oh my goodness. Also, this is a late school dance. It is. Yeah, they stay there well past their bedtimes. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, yeah, she, um, Sam goes back inside. She has to pull Carter away from Shelby as they are in a... They're getting, you know, they're H&H right now. Stop. (laughs) No. Um, She is running up the staircase and loses her cell phone. Maybe they are at a country club, actually, because the inside is very not school either. That would make more sense. So they're at a, they're actually at a country club. Yeah, maybe it's more like a like a prom venue. It only took you twelve years to figure this out. I never really thought <laughs> deeply about this, Sam. I was very much about the pretty dress and the romantic dancing. But yeah, her cell phone. Spoiler alert: clipping your cell phone to your shoe is, in fact, not the most you know stable way to go. The phone falls off and. You know, at first it kind of blows my mind because, you know, it's a flip phone from 2004. So privacy and security was not really a thing yet. Yeah, I had Um, a flip phone and I don't think it had a password on it. No, I don't think my first phone did either. But apparently this one did. Apparently because plot. 
because plot hole. Well, I don't think that was a fair noise. It was to avoid a plot hole. Um, it was a little too convenient. But if you, yeah, but if you stick your neck out to avoid a plot hole, that's still obviously a plot <laughs> hole. It's still a plot hole. Then in the car, they are, you know, talking about their evenings. So Carter totally made out with Shelby Cummings. Sam totally danced with Austin Ames. But he doesn't know who she is. And she doesn't really plan on telling him because he's expecting Malibu Barbie, not Diner Girl. Yeah, so for some reason, they've just had this amazing night and she's not going to continue to build off of this experience. She is scared that he won't like the real her. Even though they've just spent hours and hours talking about their real selves. And it's something that they do pretty much endlessly through instant messaging. Oh my God, this is my book. (laughs) Makes no sense. (laughs) They're, They're working their way back to the diner and they almost run head on into Fiona and the two stepsisters as, um, they're also leaving the event. The stepsisters look over and they see Sam and they're like, mom, look, it's Sam. And Sam hides and Fiona looks over and doesn't see her. And instead they just see Carter who, do they recognize him or no? Unclear. <laughs> Why do some people recognize him and some do not? Unclear. But regardless, you know, now there's a race to get back to the diner. Yes, and Carter is driving super slow, protecting his father's car. Sam says, I need fast and furious, not driving Miss Daisy. Meanwhile, the sisters are like, we've got to beat Sam. And just like step on the gas and start this just, there was a lot of stunts in this movie. So much drama. Yeah, this crazy car scene where they're just like blowing through red lights, taking sharp turns. It becomes an action movie. They are the Fast and the Furious. It's pretty chaotic. It is pretty chaotic. And actually, it turns out just stepping on the gas on behalf of somebody else does work because Fiona and the two stepsisters arrive at the diner first. They do. Alive. (laughs) Miraculously alive. Rhonda starts covering for Sam. She's kind of babbling, and Fiona says, what are you, a commercial? Click. She enters through the back and pops up. She is in the kitchen. She has the uniform on top, but then we pan down and very much see that she's still in her princess dress below, and it is very dirty at this point in the evening. Indeed it is. So, Rhonda, you better get a new wedding dress. On the way out, we have a repeat scene (laughs) of... Carter and Fiona almost running into each other again. And this forces Carter to swerve and run into a sign which falls onto the car and makes the car explode. So I guess they had some budget left over at the end and just went, they just went for it. And Carter faints. He ruined another car. Yeah. Boy cannot be trusted. Nope. And then we cut to school the next day. Sam thinks that, you know, the past is in the past. He probably doesn't even care. Meanwhile, she walks into school and there are flyers posted literally everywhere that are like Cinderella, question mark, with like an outline of her like face or like the way her hair was. The guys are like, dude, like, why are you so hung up on her? And Austin says she was real. Yeah, she was so real. Even though Austin really wants to know, Sam is still like, no. She's scared. She's scared to put herself out there. I don't know. I think there's something real about that. I did write a whole book on this subject. Like, I don't know. I feel like that comes from a place of the sort of 
blurred lines between who you are online versus who you are in person and the fear of not being what someone expects. Now, it's not very well developed in this movie because she does seem to be more or less the same person in both places. Like if he likes talking to online Sam, he's definitely going to be into real life Sam. And it's like they've also met in real life, you know? Right. So they know each other. It's worked in real life as well. Yeah. He's not a jerk to her like the rest of his friends are. But he is surrounded by jerks. So yeah. So she's committed to hiding until graduation. Great plan. (laughs) A plus. A A plus plan. Carter's going to tell Shelby that he was the person that saved her last night. He and Sam make a pact that if he tells Shelby, then she'll tell Austin. But apparently pacts mean nothing in this movie. Well, so here's the thing. So we cut to that scene and Shelby is very like lusty over over her mysterious man. Like he was safe, but dangerous, mysterious, but predictable. Like she just keeps talking and all of these like opposites. Carter approaches Shelby and it says that, you know, I'm him. I'm Zaro. Let me remind you. Kisses her hand and it just goes downhill from there. Yeah. She calls him the freak that sings show tunes. Yes. And let's go back to before where the only time I engage with you is when I cheat off of you in Algebra 2. Yeah. They're completely different classes of human. You obviously don't know what it's like to be popular. Obviously. Yeah. She and him. (laughs) Doubt it. And Carter walks away from this being like, if she thinks that she's cheating off of me again, she has another thing coming. But, you know, he did it. He told her he who told she her. was. And it or went He horrible. told her who he was. And... It went very poorly. It went very poorly, but, you know, a deal's a deal, in yeah. my opinion. Sam's like, just like, nope. I don't know. Sam, it's, it's the ball's in your court now. From there, we get this weird scene where the, the dude friends set up a... Like, if, you di- if you're Cinderella come to the quad at this time and prove it situation. And we get this like- What could go wrong? All these girls show up as if Austin Ames is a freaking celebrity. Like we really, for me, it's it's always been like, why? He's football captain and And student student body president, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, so everyone wants to date Austin. Here we get a line of girls approaching him and being introduced by David- we get Her some- name's Lizzie. David. <laughs> we get some super unnecessary fat phobic humor in this scene. This movie's relationship with weight is very problematic, which is something that I never really thought much about growing up, but it's very apparent on the rewatch. So that happens. Austin has had enough after three girls... He is not any of their princes. He's had enough. Yep. Meanwhile, back at home, Sam has been accepted into Princeton. Big news. Congrats. News. 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 But Fiona is the one who finds the envelope, and this just won't do. So she hides it and then lies to Sam about it. Super messed up. And it's honestly like, what is the motivation here? You never wanted her. I know. It turns out if she does this, she'll actually lose Sam faster because the thought of going to Princeton is the only thing that's keeping her there. Yeah, without Princeton, there is nothing. There's really nothing motivating her to stay there. So it's just a nightmare moment. It's truly evil. It's a mess. It is. So she's upset and 
of course, who's she going to turn to? Nomad 609. Well, she's not upset at this point. She doesn't know. Oh, that's true. They're just, they're just talking. They're just chatting. <laughs> He's just like, tell me who you are. That's true. That's true. Um, but he, but she won't. Yeah. He's just like, who are you? And she's like, eh. And then no, but she almost does it. She almost, she starts typing my name is, but then she's interrupted. Yeah. By one of the stepsisters who needs Sam to write a paper for her. And she needs to make it sound more like her, not so smart. <laughs> and it makes her stressed out having to like wait for this to be done. It needs to be now. Fiona calls Sam downstairs and this gives the steps, uh, stepsisters the opportunity to snoop on her computer and then they find out that the identity of Cinderella is none other than Sam unknown last name. Montgomery. I literally learned that just now. <laughs> and that Nomad 609 is none other than Austin Ames? Oh my goodness, no way. And of course she gasps this out loud. So Brianna is the one who is reading the computer and then Gabriella overhears this from the doorframe. You're so smart to figure that out, Lizzie. (laughs) Conversely, Austin has also gotten into Princeton and he can't tell his dad about it because again, his dad really wants him to go to USC. Disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you, son? How dare you? Um, So... Step one in how Brianna and Gabriella are going to use this information is they both come up with the same half-baked plan to memorize the conversations between Sam and Austin and become Cinderella. But they both arrive at the car wash at the same time and foil each other's plan. So Austin is like, okay, okay, I have an easy way to solve this. Never mind that neither one of you are remotely close to the same height same hair color, same anything as the girl that I am looking for. Okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. The girl I'm looking for left something behind on her way out. What was it? And then Gabriella says, a wallet. He's like, no. Then she says, a wallet purse. Still no. Then Brianna says, ooh, a fish. (laughs) Close. But no. But no. You know, a lot of far-fetched things happen in this movie, but this is one of the craziest sequences (laughs) the entire movie. So they get into a fight, a physical altercation that leads them into the car wash, into the actual part that washes the cars. Yes, they literally go through it. They are like rolled. How? (laughs) They are foamed. They are hot waxed. Just how? (laughs) Crazy. From there, we jump back to the diner. We get a moment between Sam and Austin. Make You Feel My Love is playing softly in the background. Austin is sick of taking people's orders. Sam's just like, yo, like, I'm just asking you, like, what you want to drink. And they have a meaningful conversation just as Sam and Austin. Sam is very clearly trying to, like, drop the hints. And Austin is just not picking them up. For someone who got into Princeton... (laughs) <laughs> he's really he's really not there with the context clues. No, not really. So that happens. It makes Sam realize that, oh, we can talk to each other. Which they already had. Yeah. But whatever, whatever, this conversation specifically triggers the epiphany that it didn't go terribly. She's going to tell him after the pep rally the next day. So then we cut to the pep rally. 
And so since the trying to be Cinderella didn't work, plan B is to just straight up humiliate Sam and Austin in front of the entire school and their parents because I guess parents go to pep rallies. So at I was I was a little bit conf- at first I thought that it was all parents, but maybe it's just Austin's dad because is he also the football team coach? I guess so, yeah. Cuz he's on the sideline at the football game. <laughs> I yeah. don't I don't know. It's unclear to me whether he's the coach or just a very concerned parent. A little bit of both. A, le- a little bit of both. Yeah. So wait, so before the actual pep rally, the sisters tell Shelby about Sam's whole Cinderella plot, as if this was this contrived thing to steal Austin away from Shelby. So that sets up the actual pep rally where they tell the Cinderella story. Shelby is narrating it, and the cheerleaders just expose Sam in this really brutal way. The sisters are acting in the role of Sam and Austin in the role of Princeton Girl and Nomad. Um, it's very slapstick in its delivery. It is. I I just wrote in my notes. So Chad is very, he, he's, he's really emoting here. He is really giving his best, like, some A-plus acting from Chad Michael Murray in this moment. He is crying. He is, he is in this moment. But his reactions don't mesh with what he, with, the, like, the, the end. Yeah, like... <laughs> He's so emotional throughout this scene, but then when they finally reveal the fact that Sam is Cinderella, he just sits there. What a dirk. Yeah, he looks back at her. They make eye contact. And in my notes, I wrote... Like, this should actually be great for him. Yeah. He finally knows. He, he spent hours? Question mark. Days? It's, it's unclear how long has passed, but he spent... Been at know, least a couple days, maybe a 48 little, hours. He spent a little bit of effort <laughs> trying to find out the identity of this person, and he finally has, and he likes her. Ugh, it just doesn't make any sense. When they make eye contact, I wrote in my notes, oh my God, the bangs. I see it now. <laughs> but he does nothing. And Carter is like, come on, let, let's get out of here. Move it. <laughs> that sound clip was actually applicable at the beginning of this movie. When the popular girls are storming the hallway and they're just like, move, move, move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But at least we got it in one time. I mean, a lot of sound clips on this um, on this board are applicable in several situations in this movie. For example, every time Austin is hanging out with his dad. Fine, squash my dreams. But you're right. It's like, why... Aren't you doing anything? Especially since it takes nothing for him to do something later. I know. But yes, this is the real low point in the movie for Sam. So the humiliation happens. This leads right into the Princeton, quote, rejection. Fiona being fake heartbroken. Uh, But don't worry, you have a job at the diner forever. (laughs) Don't worry. Yeah, we get, you know, a crying scene, like really, truly the low point. Sam looking through the memory box that she keeps from like stuff that from her dad. She's looking through. She pulls out the fairy tale book that we see in the opening scene and just chucks it across the room. And this becomes important. So yeah, so this leads into this again, another montage of the angst post the revelation. They see each other in the hallway and Shelby's like, she's from another world, Austin. Like, you don't belong together. Um, Continues to do nothing. Tries to write an email to her at one point. Deletes it. Bad, bad, bad. But 
On the plus side, the Princeton rejection now means, as we already said, that there is no reason for Sam to put up with Fiona's abuse anymore. And because of that, there's no reason for any of the people who work at the diner to put up with her abuse anymore. Or any of the patrons to eat there anymore. <laughs> Everybody leaves the diner. <laughs> Sam is going to go live with Rhonda and nobody is employed and nobody eats. So I guess on the flip side, it's the worst month for that costume store owner because he will not be getting free breakfast for a month. He will actually be getting no breakfast for a month. And this is where I wanted to circle back to the Rhonda of it all. If Rhonda cared so much about Sam and Sam was the only thing keeping her around and like working at this diner, why did Rhonda not petition to remove Sam from this abusive environment years ago? That is a plot hole. What is this, our third plot hole? I mean, third noted plot hole, I guess. There's been several plot holes. (laughs) Yeah, that just kind of upsets me because it's like, okay, if it was that easy... Yeah, she could have done this, like, years ago. Yeah, and just prevented years and years of emotional trauma and abuse. So that is my issue with Rhonda. So, yeah, Sam moves in with Rhonda. She also, like, threatens to fight Fiona in this scene. It's in another, like, moment of, like, blatant, like, poorly writing the one (laughs) black character. Yeah. She, like, starts, she, like, takes out her earrings. Yeah, she's gonna fight. Regina King is getting much better roles now, at least. That's true. She is thriving. We love her. So then Sam is going to go to the locker room and confront Austin. While I have been spewing a lot of quotes from this movie, we haven't gone so far as to play a clip, and that is because we were saving the clips for this like culminating epic moment. Sam. Okay, I know that you think that I'm just some... Coward. Phony. Okay, just listen. No, you listen. You turned out to be exactly who I thought you were. I never pretended to be somebody else. It's been me all along. And it was me who was hurt in front of everybody. Look, I didn't come here to yell at you, okay? I came to tell you that I know what it feels like to be afraid to show who you are. I was, but I'm not anymore. And the thing is, is I really don't care what people think about me because I believe in myself and I know that things are gonna be okay. But even though I have no family and no job and no money for college, it's you that I feel sorry for. Heads up. Yo, five minutes. I'm coming. I know that guy that sent those emails is somewhere down inside of you. But I can't wait for him. Because waiting for you is like waiting for rain in this drought. Useless and disappointing. Sam. <laughs> Oop, there it is. (laughs) I mean, he is useless and disappointing. She really clocked him. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I just don't. So then why end up with him at the end? So dumb. I know. For you, is it like you can't even really appreciate this moment because of the conclusion? No, like this should be a moment where like she reevaluated her life and like she realized that everything about it was toxic. Her obsession with him her relationship with her step family. I don't know. And then she just ends up with him. I just, ugh, it's so stupid. Yeah. They go, so from here, they go to the football game. I wrote, ugh, football, because we get a whole football montage that I do not care about. You know, we get the dad pressure, full, full steam ahead. Um, everyone chanting Austin. Sam 
thinks that she can handle everyone saying Austin's name repeatedly, chanting, but she can't. It's too much for her emotionally, so she gets up to leave, and Austin sees her walking away, just, you know, some real 2020 vision there. He's a quarterback. He he needs to have the vision. Um, Will as- he be a USC-level quarterback? No. <laughs> <laughs> he can't even win his high school football game. And he's like, sorry, boys. And this is the moment where he dips out. This is his grand gesture moment, leaving a football game that he doesn't even really want to be at. And he's like, I'm out of here. And his dad's like, Austin, get back. You're throwing away your dream. And he's like, no, dad, I'm throwing away your dream. Mic drop. Uh, He chases after Sam, catches up to her. And she's like, Austin, what are you doing? He goes, Something I should have done a long time ago. And then they kiss. He does not apologize. There is no conversation about his behavior. They just share a passionate kiss. And boom, it starts to rain. A single tear cries from the sky. (laughs) (laughs) And lands on Austin's cheek. But then it shortly starts to fully downpour. And by the way... Not that it even really matters, but they win the football game. It's all wrapped up in a quick voiceover montage. So it turns out there was a will inside of the fairy tale book. Oh my God, didn't see that one coming. Plot twist. Oh my God. And it turns out everything is now Sam's and Fiona and the stepsisters get nothing. How convenient. And then um, she uses that to restore the diner. It's now Hal's diner again. Rhonda is the manager, and for some reason, Fiona decides that the only job that she can get is to work at this diner. (laughs) Like She wouldn't want to give herself as much distance as possible. She is still going to stay right here. Yeah, it's karma. At this diner, which makes no sense, but fine. And everybody lives happily ever after, except for, I guess, the step family. (laughs) Yeah, happily ever after for now. Sam and Austin drive away, presumably to Princeton. They both go to Princeton together. Carter goes out with the announcement girl. He gets his commercial. We didn't really follow that thread very strongly. It was the movie didn't follow (laughs) closely. And um, Austin's dad is okay with Austin's choices. Yes, he is now giving discounts to Princeton alumni at the car wash and not USC alumni, and that symbolizes growth. Yeah. (laughs) Because again, what parent would be mad at their kid getting into Princeton? Um, I don't know, maybe like a Yale family. Ooh. <laughs> and that is a Cinderella story. Cool. Tropey, yes. Problematic, slightly. But charming, absolutely. Yeah, I don't have the same nostalgia for this movie <laughs> as you, so this was just 12% for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I watched this movie with my sister like every year, every year of my childhood. <laughs> I definitely had movies like that, and I probably would have a similar level of nostalgia towards them. I don't know why. Like, we had a very limited number of DVDs that we would watch in the car. So it was like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. Obviously, I love Pirates, but I recognize that especially the first one is not a very strong movie. National Treasure, obviously. (laughs) Gotta go stealing some Declaration of Independence. I, Robot with Will Smith. Oh, my gosh. Then there was like this one movie that doesn't really fit into that genre. It was called I Am David, and it was about this like 12-year-old kid who escaped from a concentration camp, 
and then was trying to find his mom in like Switzerland. Dark. I know. <laughs> I know. My childhood rotation outside of Disney, full Disney cartoons, was this movie, Legally Blonde, which absolutely holds up. I think it's in a similar category as 10 Things I Hate About You in terms of movies that hold up. And then like 10 Things and I guess Throw in What a Girl Wants, Mm -hmm. another movie that we recently revisited. (laughs) That was crazy. But yeah, that was a Cinderella story. I think the highs are high for me. I can acknowledge it is a pretty mediocre film at the end of the day. But like, I think that if you took the best parts of this movie and like revamped it, there's a lot there to work with. I mean, there's a lot there to work with because it's a movie that everybody's seen already. (laughs) It's not like this was an original movie. No, I know. But the whole like mistaken identity trope is so obviously it's very fascinating to me considering I wrote a whole novel about it. I think it'd be fun to watch the Selena Gomez one just for kicks. I think the, it looks it looks like the Selena Gomez one was better received by the audiences. Maybe we should watch it this week and then just like at the top of the next podcast, we can just give like an overall impression. Because have you ever seen it? I don't think so. And then there's like a Once Upon a Song I don't with know. Lucy Hale. Yeah, I was going to say, is that the Lucy Hale one? Because I've never seen, I've never seen that one. All right. Okay. Were there any outfits in this movie that really stuck out to you? I mean, I think we went through the main ones as they happened, right? We talked about the diner outfits. We talked about the costumes at the Halloween party. Yep. Otherwise, the outfits are pretty normal. Like Besides Carter, who varies from rapper to cowboy to a lot of different things. So yeah, I don't think we need really a whole segment on outfits. I also think we don't have time for a whole segment on outfits. So I think we can just jump right into MVP. Sure. Marissa, who's your MVP? I'm going to give my MVP to, yeah, I'm going to give it to Sam Montgomery. Yeah? Yeah, I am. Uh, That character really resonated with me my entire life. I was really, like, empathetic toward her. I really understood the fear of what if I'm not enough. Obviously, there is a lot of trauma in her story that can sort of explain I guess or kind of you kind of understand how she gets to that point where she loses her dad and then is immediately sent to the attic like she has never from that point on she was never enough like why couldn't Fiona just love her like a daughter the psychology of her character while not very deeply explored in the movie I have deeply explored it in my own head and there is a lot to unpack there and she you know, works through her stuff. She has that incredible takedown of Austin Ames at the end. Does she just sort of like let it go a little bit too soon? Perhaps, but it is a rom-com. They were clearly running out of time and we must get our happily ever after. So I am willing to just assume that these conversations happened off the page. I feel very confident in giving my MVP to Hilary Duff, Sam Montgomery, with an honorable mention to her friendship with Carter and just platonic male-female friendship. I respect your take, but you are incorrect. The MVP of any Cinderella story is the fairy godmother, in this case, Rhonda, the woman who plucks Cinderella out of obscurity 
Because, let's face it, there was nothing going for her before Rhonda empowered her and gave her the ability to find her own voice. And at the end, she she ultimately only feels safe really standing up to her, to Fiona because she knows she has Rhonda to fall back on and, like, literally support her through the rest of her high school career. Like, the MVP of any Cinderella story is the fairy godmother. Because without the fairy godmother, there is no Cinderella story. Cinderella is just nobody. I understand that, and I I respect that take also. And I would have said Rhonda if not for the fact that Rhonda could have, you know, why wasn't Rhonda the fairy godmother 10 years ago? Huh? Probably legally, any argument wouldn't have held up without the will. Yeah, but just, you know, send child services to the house and show them that this child is living in the attic. Like, I don't know. I feel like she could have fought harder for Sam earlier if Sam was really, truly the only thing keeping her around. So there's that for me. But otherwise, yes, I agree with you. Like, if we're just thinking about this within the context of this movie, yes. But when you think about the bigger picture, no. Okay. Cool. So there we have it. Week three of our mid-series break complete. We only have one week left before we dive back into Lizzie McGuire season two. And what a lineup we are developing for everyone. Yes. Next week, we will have a guest on the podcast. My friend Nick Barbieri will be joining us as we do a Big Brother simulation through the platform Brant Steel. It's a formula that we love based on what we've seen from the team over at Rob Has a Podcast. They do a lot of these sort of simulations with Survivor seasons using everything from past Survivor characters to the cast of Lost to the cast of the Avengers. So they do a lot of fun simulations over there. And we thought, hey, we want to try that as well with Lizzie McGuire, since that's probably a bit too niche for the Rob Has a Podcast team. So Nick will be joining us to help break down a Lizzie McGuire Big Brother season that I have titled affectionately Big Brother Big Sister. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to discuss i think that if you're worried about the length of these podcasts like hold your hat because the r hat ones go for like three hours they are very long podcasts so we will really have to speed through it but we're all about experimentation over here at the alpha repeater so we'll see how it goes it'll it'll be good it'll be fun yeah and then in two weeks we have the season two premiere of lizzie mcguire titled first kiss And we will also have a guest. My friend, Rachel Lynn Solomon, will be on the podcast. We're about to have a streak of guests because after that, (laughs) we're going to have a third guest. My friend, Kiara Walcott, will be on the podcast to discuss whatever episode is after First Kiss. So, yeah, I'm excited. We're going to have a good lineup of guests for you. At this point, we're just basically begging all of our friends to be on the podcast and talk to us. It's fine. But it is a really fun way to catch up with people and like meet each other's friends too because these are all my friends from my writing circle and they're your friends from work Mm -hmm. so it's like kind of a nice way for us to you know for our circles to mesh i'm looking forward to it me too as always keep up with us at outfit repeat pod on twitter and email us any feedback at outfit repeaters podcast at gmail.com 
Uh, as always, this episode will be uploaded to our website, www.paginatedmedia.com slash outfit repeaters. That's where our entire library of episodes are. They're also available anywhere that you can stream podcasts. I'll see you next week. Big brother, big sister.